Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today's feature story is from Grave Tales, Sydney, Volume 1, Black Death Hits Sydney. This is a story that feels familiar to us in 2020, but in 1900, it wasn't the coronavirus that impacted the world. It was a bubonic plague. The same plague that once killed a quarter of Europe's population had arrived in Sydney, leading to panic and demolition of hundreds of homes. The manner in which burials were undertaken was severe. But was there an upside? Yes, there was an upside, but it didn't come for a while. This started in January of 1900. A bloke by the name of Arthur Payne, who lived and worked near the docks, it was reported, had contracted bubonic plague. That was no real surprise because there had been warnings in newspapers from health and medical authorities that outbreaks of the disease in Hong Kong and New Caledonia would undoubtedly lead to its arrival in Australia. Those messages caused public disquiet, as you can imagine, Mm. and it wasn't helped by some editorials in some newspapers, even though they turned out to be completely true. One in particular from the Catholic press. Oh, those Catholics... We Catholics, what are they doing? What did they say? If the plague should get as far as Sydney, it will find a field for operations. The sanitary conditions of Sydney would invite it to do its worst. In our smelly streets, it would go from house to house like a flash, spreading terror and death on every hand. Badly drained, heaped with garbage, neglected, unclean, infected with all sorts of loathsomeness, those evil places would foster the microbes and send them forth on their destructive missions throughout every street of the city, into the suburbs, and from thence to the country. It sounds rather horrific. Well, absolutely. What the Catholic press said turned out to be exactly correct, and that there would be large numbers of demolition, hundreds of properties across parts of Sydney that would be demolished, and that would be the one positive that would come out of this. So who was the first victim? What happened? How did we know that it had arrived in Australia? Okay, well, Arthur Payne was the first victim. He was the guy who lived and worked down near the wharves. Mm. As it turned out, he recovered from it. It didn't kill him. The first death was a bloke by the name of Edward Kelly. And this gives you an idea of how this plague strikes. The doctor visited him on Monday and Tuesday. The 39-year-old was apparently only suffering from a slight feverishness. When the doctor went back the next day, Wednesday morning, he found him with a swelling under his arm and a high fever. By 3pm that afternoon, Edward Kelly was dead. Wow, that's fast. That's how quick it struck. Mm. And so this, of course, put a fear through Mm. everybody in Sydney. And then the news came of a fellow called Captain Dudley. On the 22nd of February, he contracted the disease, if we can call it that, and it killed him very, very quickly. By now, there was so much fear in Sydney that the lengths that were taken to dispose of the dead Captain Dudley were quite extraordinary. They put him in a coffin, which was then filled up with a very strong disinfectant. The shell then was encased in a succession of sheets, also soaked in disinfectant. It was then wrapped in sailcloth and towed on a skiff, not on the boat itself, but towed behind another boat on a skiff to the quarantine ground cemetery. There was a hole dug there that was so deep that no one's been able to find it to this day. Wow. And that's where they buried Captain Dudley. So this was the fear that was now abroad in the community. Now, 
Captain Dudley obviously doesn't have a headstone. No, he doesn't. And nobody knows where he's buried. Within a couple of hundred metres, probably, which is why we focus on Edward Kelly in this story, and that's whose grave we start this with. What was the actual cause, though? Well, the president of the New South Wales Board of Health, Dr John Ashburton Thompson, was able to establish that plague is primarily a disease of rats, transmitted only by fleas to rats and humans, Mm. and could best be prevented by making occupied buildings rat-proof. So these gentlemen who died, they had somehow come in contact with the rats. One of them worked on the dock, so that's understandable. Yeah, well, there was a connection with them all of the docks. Payne worked around. He carted wool to and from Central Dock. Captain Dudley had his business in Sussex Street. Edward Kelly, again, worked around the Haymarket area down near the docks. They Mm. would be pulled down later on, Mm. the markets there, because of rats and bubonic plague. Dr Thompson had railed numbers of times at the state of the city sewerage connections and he said that that would be a place where they would have real problems because, again, they were open to rats Mm. which carried the fleas Mm. which spread the plague. And it was 1900. We weren't that sophisticated when it came to sewerage. No, and these rats were scuttling down from the ships on the wharf and who knows where they'd been before, where they'd come from, into the sewerage systems, in many cases, of houses and buildings. It was later found that Captain Dudley had removed five dead rats from his business toilet just a couple of days before he died. Right. The Sydney Water and Sewerage Board carried out an investigation into the buildings of Sydney at the time, uh, buildings built up to 1880, and they showed that so many of the residents were just in a terribly, terribly dangerous insanitary condition. That was a report that was brought out in 1890. More or less every building in Sydney had this problem. Well, we've got a photo in the book, and you can find it on Trove, of the rear of a butcher's yard and toilet from the State Archives New South Wales. Oh, my God, seriously, if you saw it, you would never, ever go to the front of that butcher shop. Yeah. But the Truth newspaper listed some really bizarre examples, didn't it? Absolutely. In one of the foremost family hotels in Sydney, a soil pipe, in other words, the drainage pipe from the toilet, came down through a wall and beneath the floor of the dining room. A worthless, badly fitted pipe had broken away and this sewerage was forming a bed below the boards capable of producing, Dr Thompson said, disease germs enough to cause a thousand oh deaths. Oh, my God. <laughs> I particularly love the one with the small row of houses up there on the rocks in Miller Point. Oh, yeah, a row of houses that was directly above a little cottage and apparently sewerage from these houses was habitually poured onto the cottage roof. Oh and no one did anything about it. There was a house in Phillips Street in which a child had died from typhoid. The little victim had been in the habit of playing in the bathroom, which the waste pipe from the bath communicated with the unventilated soil pipe of the WC, the toilet. Mm. In other words, everything that was coming mm. down that tube, this little kid had access to. Oh, poor little The Glebe, three successive tenants vacated a thoroughly unsanitary house in 18 months after each of the families had a death from typhoid. Yeah, so this is the sort of stuff on. people were living in. Okay, so we've established that it's revolting, it's <laughs> unsanitary and dangerous, and what happened? Well, there was a focus on getting rid of rats, getting rid of places where rats lived, mm. and generally cleaning the city up. A rat attack. A rat attack. Very good. Thank you. They started cleaning everything. They had gangs that went into a street and wherever there'd been a case, they would go into the, the house, mm. clean it thoroughly, disinfect all of it, and if that couldn't happen, it would be destroyed. They were putting in new drains, tearing up anything that was 
possible source of the rats being able to get into the houses. Mm. Plus there was a, a hunt on rats themselves mm. and there were rat catchers. It created almost a new line of employment, didn't it? Like the rat pack has a whole new definition. Well, I mean, Dr Thompson pushed hard for a fee to be paid for each dead rat that was produced. Started out at tuppence a head, later increased to sixpence, which was a fair amount of money. It became a nice, as you said, profitable little business, mm. but there was also a suspicion that some of the rats that were being turned in in Sydney City may have been found elsewhere out in the bush. <laughs> or died a few times. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been turned over a couple of times. Again, there's a photo in the book of some of the professional rat catchers standing over a pile of rats oh. that they have caught and the whole scene, like the toilet at the back of the butchers, oh. is revolting. I know, I feel a bit sorry for the rats, I have to confess, but anyway, <laughs> all the poor little Well, these were the things that were, were causing the problem. I know. Some of the bizarre schemes that were produced to get rid of them included the use of ferrets. Now, I've heard of ferrets being used to catch rabbits, but not rats. Mm. They put in pits that were filled with a glucose-type syrup that was poison that the rats would eat. Hunks of poison meat being hung from manhole covers. Mm. All sorts of weird things were happening. October 1900, that report was that over 100,000 rats had been captured, killed and incinerated. That's a hell of a lot of rats. It sure is. And so they did a massive job in that regard. But still, the plague continued. The Mm. number of people who were getting it and the number of people who were dying from it was increasing. It's amazing, you know, even in times like this, there are people who try and take advantage. And I'm talking about the the people who brought out the phony uh, so-called cures for things. And Mm. there was one called Dr. Williams Pink Pills, which, and I quote, cure many disorders because they cure in quite a different way to ordinary medicines. And if you looked at the list of the illnesses and diseases that it would shut down, you'd close down most of Sydney's doctors if they really did work like that. It fixed everything, those pink pills. Almost as an aside, it said, quote, they also ward off and cure effects of the bubonic plague. Oh, amazing. And they were cheap, six boxes for 15 shillings and three pence. (laughs) And And the postage is free. Absolutely. (laughs) This happened straight away, a couple of days after the first fatality from Black Death. And then, of course, there were others. The whole family have their blood purified Mm -hmm. by Tasmanian herm or blood remedy. I'm quoting again, render abortive the bite of the flea. Or they may have to respond to the cry in the night in our fair city, of bring out your dead. Oh, no. Printed in big letters at the bottom of the... that's enough to make you buy it. But there was also some terrible roll-on effects. Yeah, there were. Large numbers of fish dead in the waterways around and Darling Harbour and those sorts of areas and Millers Point and around the rocks Mm. floating. Someone described the smell as fearful. Mm. And they said it was caused by the amount of disinfectant that had been put into various places Mm. that had leached its way into the water. Washed into the water, yeah. And killed the fish. So what actually was the death toll? Well, when you look at things like this, you sometimes wonder about how the reaction rates in terms of the cause and effect. Mm. The number of people that contracted bubonic plague in the 1900 outbreak in Sydney was 303 Mm. only. You'd think it'd be more. I don't mean only lightly, but I mean you're thinking of a much bigger number when you listen to what we've been describing. It was Sydney. It wasn't Australia-wide. It was Sydney. And just over a third of those died, 103. Mm. By any measure, small when you consider that in 1867, measles killed 740 in the city. Mm. 1875, scarlet fever killed 575. There were bigger death tolls from previous Mm. infections of different sorts. 
But this is where the comparison's interesting because had they not done the rat pack hunt, had they not sterilised and disinfected areas and looked at the plumbing and everything, you wonder how much more that would have been, which is what we're going through now. If the practices hadn't been put into place quickly to stop the spread, yeah. what would the effect have been? Well, hanging over your head uh, whenever you talk about this stuff is we know that between uh, 1347 and 1351, one of the deadliest outbreaks in human history was this particular uh, disease that killed 75 million people. Yeah, it's enormous. So, I mean, while you say there are only 103 deaths out of 303 people who contracted it, mm. this is what it could have been. It did prompt change in a big way. Mm. Yeah, you said at the start something good might have come out of it, and what was it? Well, it was a matter of, I guess, what you could call clean it up or lose it. This all became too big for the Sydney City Council to be able to handle, and so finally the state government stepped in, and the Board of Health sent out an inspection team, and they looked at the horrendous state of the city in terms of sewerage, mm. where people lived at the risk of rats being able to get at them. There were quarantine areas. Eventually, they stretched from Glebe right round to Paddington, up to Manly in the north. But the focus was really still on the initial infection area around the rocks. And this is where this kind of mentality of clean it up or lose it came into effect. People were told, clean up your house, clean up your block, mm. make sure there aren't places where rats can breed or live. If you don't, we'll come and do it for you mm. and we'll take the house out while we're at it. Mm. And they did. There were hundreds of buildings where thousands lived in squalor torn down. Scant rights for those who had occupied the houses that yeah. were raised. Not much concern for them at all. Some mm -hmm. buildings were never replaced. New roads gave new access to new wharves. And next to the new wharves were new warehouses. So there was a, a whole regeneration of that area. And it's an expensive area now. It is now. <laughs> and think about the other thing that runs through there now, through the areas we've been talking, the roads that lead up, the approaches to the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Yes, how fortunate that that area should be cleared to allow for that. You have to ask yourself the question, was yeah. the government that did all this pulling down and destroying of buildings a benevolent dictator, if you like, yeah. in this sense? Because remember, it was 1900 that the first design submissions were invited for the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and this is yeah. 1900 we're talking about. It wasn't a new idea. Francis Greenway, the first government architect, had been talking about a bridge that would link north and south since 1815. It was almost fortuitous they had to do this, despite the fact that a lot of those poor residents received no compensation. Yep. It's reported that many as 800 families living in the path of the bridge had their homes demolished without compensation at all. Mm. Uh, so it allowed what you'd have to call the city's best known landmark to take place. So remembering the dead, we know that we can't visit the first victim because he's been buried so deep. Captain Dudley, yeah. yeah. But where can we visit the second victim, Edward Kelly? Okay, so Edward is in the North Head Cemetery, number three. This is out near the quarantine station. That's brilliant, that quarantine station. It is. It's well worth going to have a, yeah. a look at out there. To find Edward's grave, it's only a small cemetery. As you walk into the cemetery entrance, his grave is literally just on your left, just around the corner. More detailed descriptions of where it is in the book, of mm. course. It's not hard to find. No, and it's a great place. If you're going to Sydney or you want a weekend away, you can stay, you can do tours, you can do the ghost tours as well. And there's even a great cafe there if you just want to do a day trip. But while we're talking about Edward, there's a grave in front of Edward's, Nurse Annie Egan, which is worth mentioning as well. Yes. Now, she was a young woman from Gunnedah, mm -hmm. about 41 miles or 66 k's from Tamworth in New South Wales, if you want to get your bearings. 
Okay. So it was 1918, 18 years after Edward died. Okay. Annie was 27. She graduated with her nursing qualification, and five months later, she was dead. The Spanish flu. Mm. It was the end of the Great War, and the soldiers were coming home. And this flu was a pandemic. It was spreading quickly from person to person. There'd been two waves of the virus. The first strain was milder. Annie volunteered because she had a heart of gold to look after these six soldiers who were at this quarantine station with another fellow nursing sister called Minnie Ray. And they were assigned to the soldiers from HMAT, that's His Majesty's Australian Transport, A7 Medic. That ship had been quarantined at North Head. And Minnie got sick but recovered. But Annie came down with the virus. Seven days later, she died. Her death was a bit controversial. How come? She was a strict Catholic and she begged for a Catholic priest so she could have the last rites, but they wouldn't admit a priest. So at this point she had Spanish flu. She was quarantined herself at North Head or somewhere in that area. Asked for a Catholic priest and they wouldn't let him in. That's right. The Catholic press wrote of the appalling situation that a young woman, realising she was dying and for days and nights implored for the rights of the church but not being granted. Other people took a different stance to that and the editor of the Northern Champion wrote It is as well to calmly look at the facts. They are this brave nurse who must have known that the odds were heavily against her coming out of quarantine alive, volunteered to nurse those sick and dying from one of the worst diseases which has gouged other parts of the world and was seeking to enter Australia through quarantine. Yet knowing that, she took the risk. One sacrifice of a nurse might have meant another. It certainly meant an addition to quarantine. How many voluntary nurses or soldiers have died on or near the battlefield without the assistance of church? She was a selfless young woman who gave her life to look after six soldiers. And she received full military honours at a funeral. There was a bugler and a firing party made up of soldiers who were in quarantine. And there was a requiem mass held at St Vincent's Hospital Chapel the morning of the funeral. Yeah. And in 2016, it was the 98th anniversary of Annie's death. And a little story ran the paper about how a floral garland was found around her headstone. The tour guys reported seeing it, but nobody knew who donated it or put it there, which was nice. She was remembered. We don't know why she volunteered. Don't know whether she lost someone in the Great War or she felt she had nothing to live for or she felt it was her calling. Well, guess we'll never know. No. Annie's headstone is just in front of Edwards there if you want to have a look while you're there as well. So two moving stories from the Third Quarantine Cemetery at North Head at Manly. Feature Grave. So the feature grave, one that we discovered while we were writing Grave Tales, Great Ocean Road in the Lawn Cemetery in Victoria, and one that you might be able to give us a hand with. It's a bit of a mystery. Dawn Peters, I don't know who Dawn is, but she's actually got two headstones and both of them say the same thing. It just says, Dawn Peters, someone still cares. On both of them? On both. There's no dates, there's no birth or death, and they're a couple of feet apart. There's a photo on our website, so go to our website find the About Us tab, and in there you'll see Can You Help section, and click on that, and you'll see Dawn's headstone photo. So okay. it's really a bit odd, and it's had us intrigued, and we've done a little bit of research. I've rung the local libraries. I've rung the Lawn Cemetery managers, rung the local paper. And no one can help. No joy. And she doesn't pop up anywhere in state government records or those sorts of things no. either. So if you know who Dawn Peters is, let us know. We'd love to know a little bit more about why someone cares for Dawn. If you have enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, please rate, review and subscribe by pressing the follow us button. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series available in paperback, ebook and select titles on audiobook, music by Kai Engels. 
Purchase your copy at gravetales.com.au or from all good bookstores, Booktopia or Amazon. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well. Or get a group of 16 or more together. Come along on our Great Ocean Road Grave Tales tour.